Hi, friends. This is Pastor Dan Jackson. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Jacobswell Church. My hope and prayer is that this message will be a blessing to you and lead you into worshiping and enjoying our great and gracious God. With that said, let me encourage you to use this message as a supplement to and not a replacement of a local church. Christ did not establish his church simply for us to consume messages, but so that we could be intimately invested in each other's lives as an authentic covenant community. Again, thank you for listening. And if you want more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Um, if you have a red Bible in the seat in front of you, if you're using that red Bible, it's page 953 in that red Bible. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, uh, we will be looking today at verses 7 through 21. So 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. And we labor, working with our hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. I do not write these things to make you ashamed but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? Let's pray. Lord, I pray as we dive into your word this morning that you would set our hearts on the greatest treasure. 
And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. How many of you have here, how many of you here have heard of the coronavirus? Anyone? Some of you? Okay. Some of you just can't raise your hands. That's okay. The coronavirus is everywhere. It's headline news every day of the week. Uh, I don't know if you've seen any of the pictures of grocery stores and Walmarts out in Washington, but the shelves are just empty. Uh, they, I heard yesterday they are, sent, they are selling bottles of hand sanitizer online for $200. Um, governments are spending millions and billions of dollars to fight against this virus. It is scaring people throughout the entire world. And yet, what if I were to tell you that there is a virus alive in the church that is far more dangerous than the coronavirus? The virus that is infecting the church in America throughout the world is called the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. Many of you are probably familiar with this term, but just in case you are not, the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel is a gospel that is not the true gospel, but is a gospel that proclaims that if you become a Christian, that if you follow Jesus, if you are a good Christian, if you are a really faithful Christian, Christian that God wants you to be healthy and wealthy and prosperous in this world. And this is pervading the church in America and throughout the world. Matter of fact, Ben Bartholomew, who is a missionary in South Africa, stood up here a few months ago, and I didn't provoke this in him, but he said one of the worst things that's happening to the church in South Africa is that they're being infected with the prosperity gospel, which is being exported from America. The prosperity gospel is being preached throughout Green Bay. It is being preached throughout America. And it is even infecting the highest levels of our country. Just four months ago, and this is not a political statement, so please don't take this as a political statement, but just four months ago, our president assigned a spiritual mentor who is one of the leading prosperity gospel preachers in all of America. They are a millionaire who has gone through husband after husband after husband to climb the corporate ladder to proclaim this prosperity gospel so they could have millions of dollars. And now they are going around and doing rallies for the president of the United States, trying to gather together evangelicals under this false prosperity gospel. It is an epidemic in our country. But it's also an epidemic in the church of Corinth. And Paul knows the danger of the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. You see, the dangers are... are are, are monumental. The, the first thing, just three quick dangers before we dig in. The first danger is that it focuses us on God's things instead of on God himself. We worship created things rather than the creator. The, the second thing is that it causes division in the church with Corinth experience in great amounts because you have the haves who who are presumably to have haves, to have, have financial wealth and health and prosperity because they have, are the faithful Christians. And then you have the have-nots, right? And it's assumed that they don't have all of these things because they aren't faithful to God. And so there is division because the haves want nothing to do with the have-nots. That's the second reason why it's really dangerous. And third reason is because it's just extremely dangerous. People are proclaiming, listen, 
trust in Jesus because if you trust in Jesus, you're going to be healthy. You're going to be wealthy. You're going to be prosperous in whatever you do. And so people, I'll put in quotes, trust in Jesus and they don't become healthy and they don't become wealthy and they don't become prosperous as they had assumed, as they had been promised by these false teachers. And so they vacate the faith and give up on God. The prosperity gospel is a virus that is destroying the church, both in America today, but also in the church in Corinth. And so Paul puts this virus in his crosshairs to annihilate it. And so let's look today first at the source of the prosperity gospel. Where does Where does the prosperity gospel come from? How can people believe in this prosperity gospel? How can they foster this prosperity gospel? And really the reason why they can do that is because the origins of the prosperity gospel are really good things. Um, God given things that are twisted and perverted so that we can worship again created things instead of the creator. First, we see the prosperity gospel comes from the earthly blessings of God that he's given to us, good blessings that God has given to us. Look at verse seven with me. He says, for who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? You see, from a worldly perspective, things were going very well for many of the the Christians in Corinth. They were surrounded by very gifted speakers. They were financially secure. The community around them seemingly accepted them down to verse 10. Paul says that they were considered wise and strong and honorable, not only in their own minds, but in the community around them. None of these are bad things. All of these are good things. It's okay to want these things and to pray for things. But the, but the Christians in Corinth assumed that they had these comforts because they were better Christians than the other Christians. Because they had more faith than the other Christians. But here we see in verse seven, Paul says, listen, you did not receive the blessings of God because you are awesome Christians. You received the blessings of God because God is gracious. You didn't receive the blessings because you deserve them. You received the blessings despite who you are and what you have done. And so they're boasting in themselves, thinking again that they have figured out this formula to merit the earthly blessings of God right now. You know, I see this sediment in my own heart. It's not just out there, it's in here. You know, when something goes wrong in my life, I think, Lord, why is this going wrong in my life? Haven't I surrendered my life to you? Haven't I, haven't I pledged to follow you and be obedient to you, Lord? And yet, And yet this happens, God. It's subtle, but it's there. You know, God has so richly blessed me and my family and this church with with earthly blessings, which I am so thankful for. But sometimes I'm convinced the reason we are blessed is because we have the right theology. It's because we take the Bible seriously. Because we love Jesus more than others. And yet, if I know, if I am honest with myself, My theology has a long way to go. I'm not as serious about the Bible as I should be. And I don't love Jesus as much as I want to. From a national perspective, 
we live in a nation with many blessings, many blessings. That's why other people are seeking refuge in this country because of all of the worldly blessings that we have and, and there are things that we should give thanks for. But it seems that some have come to the conclusion that we have all of these blessings because we're the good guys, because we have done this thing right, because we are a, quote, Christian nation. But we must be careful not to put on a pedestal a nation where racism is rampant, where thousands of infants are killed every year, where sexual immorality is celebrated and gossip is commonplace amongst our leading officials. We must be careful. Do we have lots of blessings? Absolutely. But it's not because of our goodness. It's because of God's grace. Do you see here how we take the earthly blessings that God has given to us, which are good things, and we twist them and pervert them in our heart? We have good stretches where everything seems to be going well in life. Everyone is healthy. We can pay our bills. We're getting along and we just assume, you know what? God is doing this because I'm a good Christian. And we assume that this is going to continue forever as long as I'm a good Christian. And so we take the earthly blessings of God, which are the grace of God, and we become entitled to them and say, God owes me this. And we make God to be a debtor. And then the real question is, who is the God of that relationship? And so the first source of Christian prosperity theology is the earthly, the good earthly blessings of God, which we twist by our own perversion. The second source that we see here is from the eternal promises of God, a good, a good thing, a great thing, which our hearts pervert. Paul confronts this with a very, very thick layer of sarcasm. And if you don't understand that, these verses won't make any sense. But Paul is being extremely sarcastic. In verse 8, he says, Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. Kings are powerful and influential and comfortable. He says, And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. Paul is exposing the heresy of the prosperity gospel with a single word, already. Already. Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. You see, the promises of having everything our heart desires, the promise of having unending riches, the promises of reigning in power are promises that God has given to his people. But they are our inheritance in the future. They are not already. They are not yet. They are promises yet to be fulfilled. God makes us these promises. In the area of having everything we need in, in Revelation 7, which is a picture of heaven, it says, they shall hunger no more, neither thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat, for the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This is a promise of God for the people of God in the future and the new heavens and new earth, not already. In the areas of riches, Ephesians 2, 7 says, so that it, in the coming ages, in the coming ages, in the future, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. 
in the area of reigning. 2 Timothy 2 says, if we endure, it's a present tense, if we endure suffering in this present time while we are alive in this world, he says, we will also in the future reign with him. You see, these things are promises of God's, these, are, these things are promises of God to his people, but not in this life, but in the world to come. But already, Already, already the Corinthian Christians were claiming these promises and applying them in this world. This isn't a perfect illustration, but several years ago, my wife and I sat down with a lawyer to put together our will. And in our will, we decided that we would leave pretty much everything to whoever was guardian of our children for, you know, until they're of grown age. Imagine if, you know, we, we took that will, we signed it, we printed it, and we sent it to those people who were going to be guardians, which is what we did. And, and they took that will, and they decided, you know, what, I'm going to come over to their house right now. And so they come to our house, and they start sleeping in our bed, and they start eating our food, and they start driving our cars. We'll say, what are you doing? And they said, well, it's in the will, right? These, all these things are mine right now, right? No, no, not right now. In the future, you're welcome to our food, you're welcome to our cars, you're welcome to our house, but these are not yours yet. These are promises for the future, not for the present. This is the mistake that the Corinthians were making. This is the mistake that the prosperity gospel preachers are making, that they're taking the future promises of God and applying them into the current world. And so does God owe us health? Does God owe us Riches and reigning? Does God owe us those things? The answer is yes, because he has promised them. But not yet. In the world to come. So what are the origins of prosperity theology? The earthly blessings of God that we start feeling entitled to and the eternal promises of God that we mistakenly think are to be applied right now. Secondly, the debunking of the prosperity gospel. How do we know this isn't true? That people quote Bible verses saying, you know what? God wants to give you every desire of your heart right now. How do we know that it's not true? Verse nine. Paul says, for I think that God has exhibited us apostles. The apostles were the 12 that followed Jesus around. You take away Judas, you add in Paul. That's the group that he's talking about. He says, for I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death. The picture that Paul is painting here is of a captured enemy soldier that is paraded through the streets, that is mocked and spit upon and then hung up to, to, to die in mockery in front of the entire village. That is the picture that Paul is saying. He's saying this is the life of the apostles right now. He says, because we have become a spectacle, a theater to the world, to angels and to men, we are fools for Christ's sake. They're considered fools in the eyes of the world because not only do they believe that Jesus is God in the flesh and that he's raised from the dead, but they are fools because they are willing to trade all of the earthly comforts in order to proclaim the kingdom of Christ. He says, but you are wise in Christ. Again, this is heavy sarcasm. They're immature. They're young in their faith. He says, but you, you consider yourself wise in Christ. 
We are weak, which is true, but you are strong. Sarcasm. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted. That means repeatedly harmed and homeless. And we labor working with our own hands. One way to debunk the prosperity gospel for ourselves and for others is simply to point to the apostles, which is what Paul does here. These apostles were the right-hand men of Jesus. They were sent out by Jesus himself to go and proclaim the good news of the gospel to establish his church. They were not perfect men, but they were faithful men. They were courageous men. And yet what did they get in return for being faithful to Christ? They were mocked and beaten and disgraced. They were poor and homeless and lonely. All of them were tortured. And all but one were martyred for their faith. You see, if any man deserved in worldly standards to be wealthy and healthy and honored, it was the apostles who were faithful missionaries of Jesus. And yet if their life was marked with suffering, why would we assume that we are entitled to anything different? The apostle Paul talks about his suffering in his second letter to the Corinthians, which is actually his fourth letter, but that's another story. Second Corinthians 11, 24, he says, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes last one. 40 lashes were thought to kill a man. And so he got 39 lashes on five different occasions. Could you imagine what his back looked like? He said, three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. And when he was stoned, he was left for dead. They thought he was dead and they left him. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. And then he goes on and on and on talking about all the pain and danger that he went through. Listen, if the people who wrote the New Testament suffered, why wouldn't we? This does not sound like our best life now. And that's exactly Paul's point. Our best life is yet to come. You know, I mentioned God's future promises and eternity of health and prosperity, but Jesus does actually give us promises for this life as well. Jesus says, I will never leave you or forsake you. That is a great and wonderful promise that really trumps all the prosperity gospel promises. But Jesus also makes this promise. He says to his apostles, then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. In Mark 8, Jesus summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. This is a calling not to suffer, but to follow Christ, even if it causes suffering. The apostle Paul in Philippians 1 says, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his name's sake. These are not Bible promises that we typically write on the mirror in our bathrooms to encourage us every day, but maybe they should be. We're not called to be masochists. We're not to, called to pursue suffering, but to follow Christ, even if suffering comes. So quickly, I just want to give you five 
proofs that debunk the prosperity gospel, okay? Number one, the Bible. (laughs) If you look throughout the scriptures, God's faithful servants always go through sufferings. Read the lives of the prophets in the Old Testament. They're killed. They're persecuted. Number two, the apostles. Again, we just went through this, but they were faithful in following Jesus, and because of it, they suffered. Number three, the promises of Jesus who says that we will suffer. Number four, our own experience. We know that in this life, there is suffering. And number five, and probably the greatest debunking of the prosperity gospel is the gospel itself, the life of Jesus. Jesus was the ultimate faithful one, and yet he was made poor and weak. They made him out to be a fool and held him in disrepute. He was poorly dressed, hungry and homeless, and he was made a spectacle of upon the cross where people mocked him and spat upon him, and yet it was through his great suffering, through his great sacrifice that brought us peace with God, that brought us the hope of salvation. And so if the Son of God is not beyond suffering, neither are we. Now here's the thing. When we understand that all the worldly blessings of God are not a right, but a gift of God's grace, if we understand that faithful service to Christ does not prevent our suffering, but in some cases actually promotes our suffering, then when suffering comes, instead of being bitter and angry and resentful, we can actually be a blessing to those who persecute us. That's what Paul says here in the second part of verse 12. He says, when reviled, that is vilified, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When when people are speaking against them, when they're being tortured, they keep on going because they know that the promises of, of health and wealth and prosperity are not for this life, but for the life to come. They keep on going. They press on. When slandered, we entreat. To entreat means to earnestly plead. They continue to plead for for their enemies, for their captives, for their persecutors to trust in Jesus. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Paul is reminding them of how much the world hates them of how untrue the prosperity gospel was for the apostles. Again, not because they were unfaithful, but because they were extremely faithful to God. So just to recap, the origins of the prosperity gospel is these worldly blessings that God has given to us that are a gift of his grace, that that we presume we earned them and deserve them, and so we feel entitled to them for the rest of our life. Also, the heavenly promises of God that he gives to us that are for the world to come that we assume are for this world right now. The debunking of triumphalism. Really, the whole Bible, uh, the life of the apostles, our own life experiences, the promises of Jesus, and the very life of Jesus himself. But finally, the admonishing of the prosperity gospel. Verse 14, Paul says, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. To admonish someone seems to, means to warn someone to warn them against what is bad and to urge them towards what is good. Paul is warning them against prosperity theology and urging them towards faithfully serving and suffering for Christ. And may I say, I think that we can learn a lot from Paul's approach to these prosperity gospel proponents. 
I don't know about you, but when I'm around people who are spewing the prosperity gospel, I just want to squish them like a bug. But that's not what Paul says here. Paul comes to them with strong language to admonish them, but he comes to them as a father to his beloved children to love them and care for them and steer them back on the right path. And Paul addresses them as a spiritual father. Verse 15, he says, For though you have countless guides, that's tutors or schoolmasters, for though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Paul was a father to the church in Corinth because Paul brought the gospel to Corinth, because Paul established the church in Corinth. He was a father figure who loved his children, who cared for his children, who sought to admonish his children and even discipline his children if necessary. But the thing that he is pointing out is, listen, you are children leading one another. And it's not going very well. You need to listen to someone who is mature in the faith, someone who is a father figure in the faith. I mean, imagine here at church if we allowed our children's ministry to be run by children. How would that go? How much ice cream would they have? How little discipline would there be? How faithful would the teaching of the Bible be? It would not go well because there are children leading children. And so it's not quite the blind leading the blind, but it's the immature leading the immature. And that's what Paul's confronting here in this passage. He's saying, listen, you guys are leading one another. You're teaching one another, but you're all coming from a place of immaturity. And so what is the remedy for that immaturity? Of course, good teaching is, but also a good model. And that's why Paul says here in verse 16, I urge you then, be imitators of me. Verse 16 is very succinct and it feels very arrogant, doesn't it? Paul says, listen, your problem is you need to be more like me. Okay, <laughs> flesh that out. Later in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul says it this way. He says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. In other words, we must imitate Paul as Paul, in whatever way Paul imitates Christ. We need godly examples in our lives. We need people that we can imitate as they imitate Christ. On multiple occasions, Paul calls us to, to follow godly examples and to be godly examples. In 1 Timothy 4, he says, set the believers an example in speech and conduct and love and faith and purity. First Peter 5, Peter says to the elders of the church that we are called to be examples to the flock. Here's the reality. Maturity in Christ is not only taught, it is caught. In other words, the loudest sermon you will ever preach to those around you is the way that you live your life. I don't know about you, but that is really convicting to me, especially as a father. Maybe you have never done this, but I have screamed at my children, stop screaming at one another. Have you ever done that? I have. I'm not practicing what I preach. The loudest sermon you will ever preach is simply your life. And as we live out our life, we must say, follow me as I follow Christ. And that includes even an example of repenting when we don't follow Christ well. Verse 17, he goes on and says, this is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, 
to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. And so get this, so Christ has imprinted his life on Paul. Paul has imprinted his life on Timothy. And now Paul is saying, let Timothy imprint his life on you, Corinth. As he follows Christ and whatever he follows Christ, be mentored by Timothy. You know, I've heard it said that all of us need a Paul and all of us need a Timothy. All of us need someone to disciple and all of us need someone to disciple us. You know, I remember when I became a new Christian, God surrounded me with, with many, many godly men in my life that, that I imitated. I think of, of my campus minister, Pastor Chad, who, who loved to love on people and loved to share the love of Jesus with others. What a mark that made on my life. I think of my friend Joe, uh, who was a poor college student like me, and yet he would take his precious ramen noodles and he would divide them in half so I could have half of his precious ramen noodles. It made those passages about loving one another come alive. I, I remember as a young married man going to visit my uh, Young Life area director, his name was Tom Pruden. And, and this wasn't intentional, he was just living life, but I remember we were meeting together and his son was being wildly rebellious. And, and so he went to his son and he took him into the other room and you could kind of overhear through the walls what was going on. And he held his son and he said, he said, I love you, I care for you. Do you know why I'm disciplining you? And they talked through it and he said, I love you and I care for you. And then he disciplined his son and then he held his son and his son wept and he told him, I love you, I care for you, I want the best for you. I've never seen anything like that before in my life. We need role models in our lives. We need to be role models for others of what it means to follow Christ. This is one reason I love community groups. In my community group, to some people, I'm a Paul. To some people, I'm a Timothy. Some of them are Pauls and some of them are Timothy. But most likely, those people are both Pauls and Timothys to me, if that makes any sense. And in some ways, they're stronger in certain areas of their walk with Christ than I am. And so I learned how to be a better prayer from people in my community group who love to pray and to cry out to God. It teaches me. I model that. And there may be other areas that I'm stronger that they model in me. And so we are called to imitate one another in whatever ways that one another imitate Christ. And so Paul admonishes them to follow his example and now Timothy's example to faithfully suffer as he follows the faithful suffering of Christ. Verse 18, he goes on, and this is a little bit tangential, but I wanna cover. He says, some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you. They were talking trash about Paul. They were saying, you know what, Paul is impressive through his writing, but in person, he's not very impressive. And so they're kind of talking trash about Paul. Verse 19, he says, but I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. Paul is saying, listen, talk is cheap. The kingdom of God is powerful. It transforms hearts. It transforms longings. It transforms lives. And so what I want to see is the power of this prosperity gospel because Paul knows in reality that the prosperity gospel is absolutely bankrupt. 
that it does not provide for the deepest longings of our soul, but provides these worldly blessings that only create this exterior illusion of happiness, but never satisfies the deepest longings of our soul. And so Paul says, listen, I'm going to come to you. Verse 21, he says, what do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? Paul is giving them a choice. He's saying, listen, if you want to come together in humility, I would love to come with a spirit of gentleness. But I love you so much that if you are stubborn, I will come against you harshly because this prosperity gospel thing is tearing your church apart. And so the question is, how do we come to this passage today? Do we come to it proud, thinking it's other people's problems and we don't wrestle with it in our own heart? Or do we come humbly saying, Lord, show if there's any error in my own heart, in my own life, in my own theology, and lead me in the way everlasting. I want to end with this. You know, many, you might wonder, man, if following Jesus brings suffering, why would I follow Jesus? And and the answer is simply because Jesus, if you had a scale, Jesus is weightier and greater than all other earthly blessings. Not to mention, I mean, we suffer for people that we love all the time, right? I mean, if you have children, if you have parents, you suffer things because you love them. Why wouldn't it be for Christ? But, but I don't want you to take my word for it. I actually, want to, I actually want to give you a testimony of someone who was deep into the prosperity gospel and God saved them out of the prosperity gospel. There's a prosperity gospel preacher many of you probably heard of. His name is Benny Hinn. And man, he is, he is rich, uh, financially rich. He has, he has mansions and amazing cars and things like that. And Benny Hinn has a nephew. And his nephew's name is Costi Hinn. Okay, Costi Hen. And he was at one time a catcher for Benny Hen, meaning like when, when Benny Hen would slap people on the head and slay them in the spirit and they would fall backward, he would catch those people. Okay, so he was very involved in the ministry. I read a, an article yesterday by PJ Media, and the title says, From the Prosperity Gospel to Jesus Christ. Benny Hen's nephew shares his conversion story. So, you're not supposed to read long things when you preach, but I'm going to read a long thing because I couldn't figure out what to cut out because it's an amazing story of God's grace. Now, this is what the article says. It says, Costi Hinn, a former prosperity gospel preacher and nephew to the immensely popular prosperity gospel preacher, Benny Hinn, shared his conversion story with PJ Media before the release of his forthcoming book. This is what his book's called, God, Greed, and the Prosperity Gospel, How Truth Overwhelms a Life Built on Lies. Hinn first shared his story in Christianity Today two years ago, but his book and his interview fleshes out the story of how a man-centered rich kid became a God-centered follower of the humble Jesus. Costi Hinn's powerful story illustrates the difference between the prosperity gospel and true discipleship. Hinn began his conversion story with his collegiate experience of playing Division I baseball. His coach, who was a Christian, urged him to play hard, but noted that God is in control of our lives. So whatever happens, if the scouts didn't notice a player or if they lost the game, the player should just have a good game and trust God's sovereignty. Costi said this. He says, I remember being so confused. In our prosperity gospel theology, we commanded God to bless us, to give us blessings of health and wealth and abundance. I was viewing my prayers as things that God had to do to me 
It was just as simple as believing in faith and God would have to do it because being a Christian means God would give me the desires of my heart. He brushed off this confusion, but concerns surfaced yet again when he met his future wife. He says, I met a girl. She drives a Yaris. (laughs) I'm a gas guzzler, cocky, prosperity gospel kid and a preacher. And here's this gal who's a server at TGI Fridays, putting herself through school. Her parents are blue collar, hardworking people. He says, I meet her and she's nothing like us, but I fell head over heels for her. He said he brought her to his family to fix her. In other words, uh, she was not speaking in tongues. And so he brought her to his family so that they could teach her how to speak in tongues, but she didn't speak in tongues. And she mentioned that she thought it was a little weird that, that we drove Hummers and Benzes and Mercedes and were pastors. He and his family left uh, the family, he and his wife left the family circle because she had asthma. And in the Hen family, you're not allowed to be sick. You hide it. You're not allowed to say you're sick because that will spread bad energy and get other people sick. It's a very mystical religion. Leaving the family, he ended up serving as a youth pastor at a church. And the head pastor gave him the passage, John 5, 1 through 17, to preach through the healing at Bethesda. And when he was preparing to preach this sermon, his life changed forever. In the passage, Jesus approaches a multitude of sick people, and he picks out one guy. This stuck out to him because he believed that God wants to heal everybody in this world. He says, if you just give an offering, you will be healed. God will give you a miracle. So says, then I got to the point where Jesus heals the man immediately. Jesus says, arise, pick up your pallet and walk. There was no music, no fanfare, no special atmosphere. It was absolute and immediate. And Hinz says, I'm thinking this is really wild. And I love this part. He says, the next section of the text, where the man is now walking around carrying his pallet, and the Pharisees say, who told you you can pick up your pallet and walk? It's the Sabbath. Who gave you permission to do this? He says, the guy who healed me because he did not know who Jesus was. Cossie says, that was the moment where for me, everything flashed in my mind and I thought, you've got to be kidding me. He got healed and he didn't know who Jesus was. He turned to John MacArthur's commentary on the passage. (laughs) and read that no one can control Jesus. Essentially, you can't make a formula out of his ministry. While Hen was reading that commentary on the passage, the Lord caused the scales to fall from his eyes. He quoted MacArthur's words saying, here we see an example of Jesus as a sovereign healer. And one of the cruelest lies of faith healers today is that the people who fail to get healed aren't guilty of negative confession or a lack of faith. That's exactly what we thought Henry called. That way, when they didn't get healed, we can blame them for it. Realizing the human source and the corruption of the prosperity gospel, he repented and turned to God. He said, I said, I said sorry to God. I repented of my sin. I told Jesus that I would serve him faithfully as long as I live. He went on and said, that was the moment I believed. I was saved and converted. I turned to Christ as he won victory in my heart. He encouraged Christians 
to form relationships with those who are caught up in the prosperity gospel, not to run away from him, but to form relationships in order to counter the false narrative with Jesus, true call to discipleship. He says, I'm thankful that there were people in my life who spoke the truth and they were willing to risk my reaction because they loved me enough to tell me the truth. We have this idea that tolerance is accepting and celebrating other ideas. So one, no one knows how to disagree with anyone. We need to remember that we are rejecting ideas, but not people. While many today might claim it is mean or hateful to challenge someone else's, quote, truth, Hinn insisted that it is hateful to withhold the truth. It goes on and on, and it's such a good article. I wish I could read it all. But here you have a picture of a man who from a worldly perspective had absolutely everything, but he was bankrupt in his soul until he found Jesus. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you that you have given us the greatest treasure. You have given us yourself. Forgive us for how we might, might believe in some of these lies of the prosperity gospel in our own soul. God, pray that you would make us courageous enough to come along those who have come under this false teaching of the prosperity gospel, that we would love them, that we would care for them, that we would ask them questions, that we would be able to pull back the curtain, Lord, and show them the deceptiveness and the emptiness and the bankruptcy of this false theology. Lord, it is a virus that is plaguing the church and that the church of America is exporting throughout the world. And so, God, we have confidence in you because you say against the church, the gates of hell shall not prevail. We know that you will defend your church, that you will sustain your church. But, God, pray that you would use us in that to bring people out of the tyranny of the prosperity gospel and into the joy and the light of the true gospel, which is greater than all of the comforts of this world. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.